Good morning. Welcome. Hi, Bridget. Good morning. For those of you who were here last night, you realize this microphone wasn't on. It didn't work. So welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for January 27th, uh, 2016. We are um, gathering for the last week in January. Next week, February 3rd, we will have Cynthia Pierce uh, speaking about sexploitation, helping kids develop healthy sexuality in a porn-driven world, uh, a well-renowned speaker. Um, I have our weekly up to some good updates, which I've gotten some really good material from our Patient and Family Voices project and interviews families in various units. So today's quote is about uh, Dr. Sam House. Dr. Sam House is the best in the world. <laughs> She listens is great even with the youngest patients managing to put him in the middle of every conversation. Dad, yep, she talks our language. We never even have to ask for another layperson translation. I wish they were all like her. Heck, I wish you were my doctor. So thank you, Sam, for for fine work on the wards. Uh, today's code is SR53, a reminder about after you enter your code and get your uh, CME credit, uh, keep all laptops closed for the presentation out of respect for our speaker. And um, our speaker today is well known to all of us, uh, but it's always nice to review a CV. Uh, David Bauer, um, did you grow up in Kentucky? He's from Kentucky, where he was valedictorian of his high school and completed his Bachelor of Arts in Cellular and Molecular Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins in three years, or three and a half years. Subsequently matriculated at the University of Michigan Medical School, completing his Doctor of Medicine, and completed his surgical and neurosurgical training at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and joined us in 2012 to our fortune after a year in Pediatric Neurosurgery Fellowship at Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, David has uh, become quickly active and involved in all of Chad's activities, including the Children's Hospital Anesthesia Procedures Procedural Services Committee that he's chairing now. He has numerous uh, research grants and awards, but the one that is most striking that I think everyone who knows David will believe was true is in 2004 from the University of Michigan, Me University of Michigan Medical System uh, received the Your Super Award as a Patient Recognition Award, which comes as no surprise. David is going to update us in his field of pediatric neurosurgery. <laughs> Can everyone hear? Great. Is it too loud? Yeah. So, great. So, um, well, thanks everyone for coming and uh, have no disclosures. And uh, so, you know, thinking about what I wanted to speak about today, really, there's so much about pediatric neurosurgery that I love, and uh, I had um, maybe a couple hundred slides, and so I had to pare them down to, to you know, something that was more reasonable. And so, uh, one one uh, um, aspect of pediatric neurosurgery near and dear to my heart is really complex spine, and I've done quite a bit of it over the last couple years, and really enjoyed the CSI, the Center for Surgical Innovation, 
It's our um, intraoperative MRI and, and CT suite. It's the only one in the country, and I've really been able to do a lot of um, difficult operations, I think, more safely using the CSI. And so, um, so I'll go over that, and th this is going to be really a series of spine vignettes because spine is so varied and so much different pathology. And so we'll try to uh, just go through a, a few vignettes and see what's, what's possible and, and how, how these are treated. And then I'll go into hydrocephalus, which I, I really think is something that I always like to, to speak about, and it's about a third of what I do. And so we'll go into uh, some of the, um, the data that we have as far as hydrocephalus goes, and I'll show a few pictures um, and uh, head circumference charts. And so starting with spine, uh, I'll start with a, a case. So this is a, an 11-year-old with Down syndrome, developmental delay. Uh, he uh, had this uh, wide-based gait, uh, kind of a happy, happy kid. Um, it was uh, uh, seen by his pediatrician, uh, this is about a year and a half ago, with new urinary incontinence. And so uh, he had maybe a worsening gait, it was subtle, and so she uh, astutely um, ordered an MRI of the, um, or sorry, plain films of the spine, and she saw um, this finding. So you have the, the dens, and so this is C2, and you've got the ring of C1, and you can see a widened atlantal dental interval. So anytime that's more, um, greater than five millimeters, and that's abnormal, and you probably have instability, and you know these kids um, oftentimes have instability. And the other thing to look at is this spinal laminar line, and so um, if you look and you can see the lamina, which is uh, this sort of white line right there, um, right by the spinous process, it's coming up, and so so the lamina of C1 really should be coming right about there, and you can see how it's translated. And so um, we um, got a CT, and you can see something that's called an os odontoidium, which is really um, uh, the, the top ossification center of the dens, which is um, fractured off. And then you can see the widened ADI. And then here's the posterior arch of C1, and you can see the narrowed spinal canal. And really, at C1, it should be um, the, the widest. Um, you can see how narrow it is here. So here's the dens, and so there's really not a lot of room for the spinal cord. We got flexion extension MRI scans, and you can see in extension the spinal cord, the uh, C1 reduces, and then in flexion you can see how it narrows. And so uh, this child has symptoms from C1, C2 instability. And so, uh, what are the screening guidelines really for, for Down syndrome? And so, um, looking at the literature, um, a few people have um, uh, written this up. I, I like the guidelines from a guy, Rich Anderson, uh, who's out of Columbia, a pediatric neurosurgeon. And so um, he thinks that uh, you should get a lateral uh, C-spine x-ray at around three to five years of age in every child with Down syndrome, um, possibly with flexion and extension, uh, to look for um, instability. You, most of the time, you get C1, C2 instability. Occasionally, you'll get occiput to C1. Um, you should always get a lateral C-spine prior to uh, any procedure where you have hyperextension of the neck, uh, like a tonsil adenoid. Uh, lateral C-spine prior to Special Olympics. Um, lateral C-spine if symptomatic, such as a child with the urinary incontinence. Um, but if, otherwise, if you have one study in time that is normal, you have a normal atlantodental interval, then you really need no further films unless the child develops symptoms.
So, um, so what do we do? So uh, we put in screws in C1 and C2, and we had a nice reduction. You can see um, how wide the canal is. And uh, this is what the screws look like. So you have lateral mass screws here. You have the vertebral artery that's out lateral. And uh, you, just, you put these in under um, uh, direct visualization. And then I do uh, translaminar screws at C2, and this is the bone graft. And so uh, this is what it looks like in the end. You can see how the atlantodental interval has been reduced. And, uh, and he did well. His urinary incontinence went away, and his gait's a little bit better. And so I've seen him for about a year and a half in follow-up. And so this will lead us to uh, spine and the CSI. So, um, so uh, this is our first case, actually, in the CSI. And so this is uh, something that we, we've written up with the case series. And so it's um, looking at um, severe pediatric deformity correction for um, this 13-year-old girl with this chondrodysplasia punctata. It's a skeletal abnormality. It's characterized by this irregular punctate calcification of dystrophic uh, epiphyseal uh, cartilage and other cartilaginous structures. And it's commonly associated uh, abnormalities include growth retardation, rhizomalic limb shortness, ichthyosis, cataracts, and developmental delay. This girl otherwise was uh, developmentally uh, normal. Um, but she had this uh, dwarfism, and uh, when she was seven, she required a C1, C2 fusion for progressive cervical instability. And then she came in with worsening myelopathy. Her arms would go numb every time her chin um, went down when she was looking at a computer keyboard. She had uh, problems uh, buttoning shirts and um, things like that. No urinary incontinence yet. And so then we did imaging, and we, we uh, found uh, worsening um, kyphosis with instability. So you can see the uh, difficulty of um, operating on this girl where you have uh, you know multiple bones that are abnormal. You have this punctate um, uh, stippling of the bones. So the bone doesn't look like it's very uh, high quality. It's not going to take a screw and, and hold it. Um, you can see narrowing here at C1. And uh, look at her um, MRI, and you can see the multiple areas of compression. So uh, this is her prior hardware, the C1, C2 fusion. And uh, she has a mild scoliosis with a compensated curve. And, and this is her CT, and you can see some uh, dysmorphic vertebrae. And so she's had the fusion up here, um, down here at uh, C7, T1. She has a fusion, some other butterfly vertebrae, and other anomalies. And this is a really abnormal-looking vertebrae. You can see the vertebral body. The area for the spinal cord is very small. And so um, that's the main area of compression. And so we did uh, flexion extension MRI. Sometimes you can see the dynamic compression, and this really helps to find out exactly Exactly what you need to decompress and fuse, and so um, this is her MRI and extension, and you can see in flexion she really had this area of compression of the spinal cord, which we thought was the, the main uh, um, area that we needed to focus on, and so. Um, we also got imaging, and we found that her prior hardware, the C1, C2 fusion, had eroded into the skull, and so we had to deal with that, too. She was having headaches, and so, um, so we had a lot to deal with. So this is the CSI. I don't know if, you, if you've seen uh, pictures or, or been down there, but um, it's an amazing operating room suite. You have um, an interoperative MRI scanner that's here, and you have a room where we do mostly uh, brain tumor cases, um, and so the scanner comes in um, on the ceiling, and it's, it's a couple-ton scanner. That's, that's hanging from the, these tracks from the ceiling. So it can come in, and then you can get your scan, and it comes back out. And the nice thing is that you can have two operations running. Over here is our spine room on the left, and so the CT can come in from this way, and then the MRI from that way, and we can just move the OR table either way to get the scan. And then you have a minor procedure room over here for the CT. So 
It's, it's a really nice setup. The rooms are large. Um, you can see our patient here. So we're um, in pins and uh, we're um, prone on, you can see the scanner coming in over our, the ceiling on top. And uh, this is us operating. And so this is an intraoperative CT. And so um, this is her neck. So this is anterior. This is the posterior. This is the skull. And you can see how I've gone in and decompressed in a vertebrectomy at uh, C7, T1. And uh, I wanted to check and make sure that I had drilled out safely all of that bone. So I had done a, a good decompression. The spinal cord's living here. And then uh, we put in a strut cage. So this is. Um, uh, a, a plastic um, uh, material that uh, expands, and so we were able to put that in. You can see the, the markers uh, showing that it's in the end plates. And then we put some screws in uh, safely um, using uh, new uh, navigation. So this is a way where within a millimeter I can put screws into the spine. And this has really been another um, neat part of the CSI that's made surgery safer. You know, in the past, <clears throat> putting in these uh, screws, you do it either based on anatomical landmarks or, and fluoroscopy. And if you've seen, you know, fluoroscopy images, it's, they're not great. You know, you can kind of see what's going on. You can get bipolar views, but, it, but it's not perfect. But to have CT guidance to be able to put screws where this is a four and a half millimeter screw, and you can see how vertebral artery is going to be here, just lateral, and, and it's just you know perfect going through the bone. Um, I wouldn't be able to place these screws um, with the confidence that I have um, without the the CSI and the navigation and, and the CT. And so um, we put in screws. Um, you can see the. Um, so the cage is here. It's uh, invisible because it's plastic, but you have these metal markers. And then you can see the different screws that we've put in above and below to fixate and uh, so that um, she'll, she'll fuse the spine. And so um, this is uh, sort of an AP view. And, uh, uh, and then we got an intraoperative MRI. It's not the great best quality, but we really wanted to make sure that we had a, a nice, adequate decompression. And so and this is what it looked like in the end. You can see these pedicle screws and then our cage and then these long rods and then multiple points of fixation up top. And uh, I can tell you that this girl is doing great now, uh, about a year and a half out from surgery. And her symptoms uh, where her hands uh, went to sleep are completely gone and everything's healed up and the bones uh, fused. So it's, it's, a, it's a big success. And so um, I do think that the CSI has been helpful. And so we'll, we'll go over a couple other um, cases. Um, and there's another uh, boy, uh, he was eight. And he presented with back pain, and he had some urinary hesitancy with incontinence. Um, so uh, he uh, got spine imaging, was found to have a sacral tumor, and so uh, we were resected it in the CSI, and this is an osteoblastoma. And so um, I'll show you the, uh, the tumor here. It's pretty evident. It's well circumscribed, and you can see the tumor here in the sacrum. So the nerve roots are coming down, and so this is really compressing the nerve roots, and you can see um, here uh, the, the tumor. And so, um, so what do we do? So um, we um, uh, came down and we got an intraoperative CT scan, and you can see the tumor. And we wanted to be able to take it and unblock in case this was something that um, we needed uh, margins on. And so, uh, using the uh, intraoperative imaging, um, we were able to navigate with a drill. So this is a high-speed drill, kind of like a Dremel drill with a little small burr at the end. And we were able to navigate in space. This is uh, just a screenshot from our navigation system. And so this, just imagine, is the drill. That's the drill bit. And so I, I knew that here's a nerve root foramen over there on the side that I was able to drill down next to the foramen. I'm below the tumor. And uh, then I was able to 
uh, come over and make um, uh, cuts on the other side. And so just imagine this is the tumor. You can see the sclerotic bone. And we were able to do a non-block resection of the tumor. And so um, this was not a malignant pathology. But if it had been, then um, we would have had pot, uh, negative margins and, and, I, and I think a, a good oncologic outcome. And so uh, again, this is something where um, otherwise you're using just anatomic landmarks to make your cuts. And you're kind of guessing you know, based on experience how, how deep you need to go. But now I, I knew with uh, millimeter precision exactly where, where, where I was with the drill. So um, the, the surgery went well. The, um, I think the surgery went, went more quickly than, than if I hadn't had the confidence of uh, the, the navigation. And so um, this is the post-op um, MRI. Um, this is intraoperative MRI, and the tumor's resected. And um, then they had a Wall Street Journal article about him, and he, he lives over in Woodstock, and so I'll see him every once in a while around town. He's doing great, back pain's gone. So, uh, so that was another success of the CSI. So these are uh, sequential cases, and so we'll move on to um, another case. This is a 14-year-old boy, and he uh, presented with significant scoliosis, back pain, and he had subtle myelopathy, uh, you know, spinal cord compression symptoms, and so um, he um, uh, was seen here by uh, one of our um, scoliosis surgeons, and uh, then seen down at Shriners Hospital in Philadelphia, and they were going to do a tethering procedure to um, treat the scoliosis, and they did their retroperitoneal dissection and found a tumor, and that they didn't realize that he had, and so they closed everything up, got a biopsy, and uh, found out it was a ganglion neuroma, and then sent him back to us, and so, uh, <laughs> so we we did a, um, uh, a two-stage operation. So uh, um, uh, Dan Crotero did a retroperitoneal resection of the tumor, and then um, we did a um, uh, thoracolumbar laminectomy, and then he's got the scoliosis, so we treated the scoliosis at the same time. And so, um, so here I'll, I'll show you the film. So you can see the tumor here um, going um, here just outside of the spinal canal, and uh, um, here's the tumor right there. So you can see how how it's coming around like that, and then it's going in through the widened foramen, and then it's pushing the spinal, uh, the fecal sac and the nerve roots over to the side. And so um, here, here are his films. And so, I mean, the tumor was there causing the scoliosis. And so um, we, uh, this is a picture from the OR. So we had our, our laminectomy, and you can see the um, spinal, the fecal sac with the, the nerve roots is over here, and, and then it's covered by tumor, which this is the outline right here of the tumor. And so uh, I, was, I peeled it off the, uh, the, the fecal sac, and then here at the end you can see the uh, fecal sac. Here's the uh, curve um, in the spine that we needed to reduce. There's a nerve root coming out. And so uh, then we used the uh, CT scan and the navigation and put in the screws and had a good reduction of the scoliosis. And so it was nice to be able to take out the tumor, prove the tumor's gone, um, and then do the scoliosis surgery all in, in one setting instead of having to have them come back you know, for multiple operations. And so, um, so that was another success. And so um, here, here's another patient. Um, this is a, um, uh, a child that had a prior cervical effusion at eight months of age. And so he was in a, you can imagine a, a little eight-month-old in a halo uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, this is in another state. And so he, um, uh, he had a fusion up here. And then he developed new myelopathy problems, buttoning his shirt, uh, some urinary hesitancy, some mild gait dysfunction. And so uh, we did imaging and found that he had this cranial cervical stenosis and also instability. And so you can see um, the um, uh, cerebellum, the brainstem, and how narrow it is up here at C1. And so 
Um, for him, we were able to do an intraoperative MRI and show that we had a good decompression of the bone and back, and then use the CT to be able to put in uh, screws. And so we did an occipital plate um, and uh, rods down to the C1, C2 fusion. Here's our uh, bony decompression, and then you can see the anterior part of the dens, and then C1. And so, so he, he did well as well. Um, any questions? So these are, you know, I, I, yeah? I just have a question about um, CT exposure. So mm -hmm. um, I, I can see the enormous benefits here, but I'm wondering um, if there is there any way of minimizing the radiation? Because these kids are obviously getting more CT than they would otherwise. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, we can use uh, lower dose protocols for kids, you know, seeing the bones. We don't need to see the soft tissue. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, really the only way you can do the navigation and see the bone. And so we try to minimize the amount of CTs. Most of these kids would get a post-op CT anyways. You know, if we were going to do the surgery in the main OR and then get a CT afterwards, and then if the screws didn't look perfect, then we'd have to go back and redo the screws and then do another CT. So in the long run, it, it, it probably um, is as much or less than, than what we would traditionally do. Um, so, um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. So um, we'll move on. So again, these are just vignettes, but I think these are showing you sort of the capabilities of the CSI and sort of the different pathology that we can take care of. So this is a girl, um, and she came in, um, had, had an MVC, and she had a um, thoracic uh, kyphosis with multiple spine fractures. This is her original scan. And so you can see um, she had a couple cervical fractures. And then down here, um, you can see the angulation and the fracture and dislocation of the posterior elements of the spine. And so she um, had very tiny pedicles. Um, these are the where we put the screws. And so um, originally, she had a, um, a sublaminar hook fixation. And so you can see how um, we've had some, some reduction, not perfect, but some reduction of the fracture. And she's got these hooks. And so she had a, a bone fusion in between. And she uh, came back to see me. And she had um, uh, prominence of the hardware. She's very thin. And uh, it was painful. And she didn't like the hardware. And so um, I told her that, that we'd remove the hardware. And so, so I did that. And you can see these are the, the pedicles. So the pedicle screws that we put in, the smallest diameter are around 5.5 millimeters. And here, this is about 2 millimeters. And so you can see how you really you just you couldn't put the screw down the pedicle. And so there's another technique where you can do um, an in-out-in screw, where you start the screw here, and it skives the pedicle, but it doesn't go um, through the rib or into the lung. And then um, you can get back into the vertebral body. But those are uh, a lot more challenging um, to, to do, especially in multiple levels. And so um, she came back after the hardware removal. And you can see on the scoliosis film that she had a 59-degree curve here. And, and she had this um, sort of gibbous kyphosis and this uh, um, uh, really um, unsightly um, uh, bony prominence in her back. She was unhappy. She wanted this fixed. Um, fortunately, we had the CSI up and running at this time, and so I told her that I could correct it now with pedicle screws, which are more robust. And so um, I put in pedicle screws and uh, had a pretty good 30-degree reduction in the scoliosis, and she she was happy with, um, with that. And you can see how um, using the in-out-in procedure, you start here and you skive right by the pedicle, but then you miss the the rib and the lung, and you can get back into the vertebral body. And so I felt more confident being able to do those screws, and um, they all went in perfectly with the navigation with the CSI. And so, 
We'll move on. This is um, a child from maybe about three months ago who, um, she, he was a 12-year-old boy um, with uh, congenital torticollis. He had um, worsening headaches and he had increased uh, lower extremity reflexes, subtle myelopathy, occasional urinary incontinence. And you can kind of see a theme. These are the traditional, you know, these are the symptoms that you see when, with spinal cord compression. And so um, he came in and he can see how his, his head is tilted and uh, he had severe uh, compression of his spinal cord at the um, ox but here's the skull base to um, C1 and C2 um, just uh, horribly severe and you can see how his dens is really pistoning up into the base of the skull and it's right there in the, in the middle this is a foramen magnum where the spinal cord is coming through and so you can see how usually it's about this wide and now I know he's got a very very small spinal canal and he was missing the right side of C1 and so this is why he had the congenital torticollis and, uh, and here it shows how, uh, again, the spinal cord is coming through this small area right there in, in, in the skull base. And so uh, we did a, a decompression and then uh, did an occipital cervical fusion and had a good reduction of his uh, spine. And again, um, all of this was confirmed um, in the CSI um, with the interoperative imaging, and we used the navigation. And this is uh, what he looks like at the end. And so we had a pretty good correction of his torticollis. His parents were happy. He was happy um, with, uh, with how he looked. His uh, headaches went away. His myelopathy went away. And so you can see so from uh, uh, the pediatric spine, really, you can see a lot of different varied problems. And you can have congenital problems, dysmorphic vertebrae, missing vertebrae, uh, congenital fusions, also traumatic or degenerative problems, tumors. And so the, the Center for Surg Surg uh, Surgical Innovation, the interoperative MRI and CT, um, I have increased accuracy and safety, um, increased confidence, and, and I think better outcomes. And so we're right now writing this up and, and uh, have had a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, people uh, um, asking questions nationwide about, about our techniques. Yeah. yeah. How, how does this compare with Stealth Station? Well, so it's, it's using Stealth in the CSI. And so, um, so it's it's the stealth navigation, but uh, with uh, I get better registration with the interoperative CT, and then uh, we're able to confirm because with stealth, this navigation that we use, it, the program is only as good as the uh, registration, how, how you set it up in the beginning. And so, if it's if you're if it's not accurate in the beginning, then the screws aren't accurate when they go in. Sorry, Jack. I had a similar question. When you say navigation, can you just explain? You're not actually imaging while you're putting screws no. in, but you have a, a GPS map of what it is. That's, that's exactly right. That's good. And it actually, it'll cut down on, uh, Shalene, it'll cut down on fluoroscopy. And so in the past, you know, we'd be using a lot of fluoroscopy, putting it in the screws. Uh, this time we do one CT scan, but then the CT scan is registered on the computer um, to our navigation, and, and it works with optics, where you have, um, you have a uh, device where you have a screw at the end of it, and uh, we'll have an awl or some sort of of, um, you know, a drill, and then at the top of it, I have um, six of these little shiny, um, these little balls that reflect off of a camera. And so, anywhere in space that I move this device, then it reflects off the camera, and then a little uh, um, set of balls that is on the uh, spine, uh, uh, that's um, screwed onto a spinous process. And so, then the computer can triangulate between the fixed uh, device on the spine, the screw that has the um, optical balls on the end, and then the camera. And so then on the computer screen, it'll show me where I am in space, in the CT space. Does that make sense? A little bit. And so, so, it, so it's... 
And, and so, so, so it's, it's no radiation. Every time that I'm putting these in, there's no additional radiation. It's just the CT scan. Do you also have um, devices that take large movements and make them small? Like, or is, are you still just directly putting them in, but having the triangulation so it's Yeah, I'm just, I'm just putting them in. Yeah. And so you. Video games or? How yeah, it's a little bit. It's like video games. No, it really is. It's like it's like video games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's. <laughs> Uh, it's, it is it's definitely like video games. I'll, I've got a couple other pictures actually in, in a second that I'll, that I'll show, but it's it's just like video games, and you're navigating off of your, um, your your video screen, and so you have to have trust and confidence in this image because it's not real time. I mean, it's real time, but it's based off of the CT that you got, you know, uh, an hour ago, and so if anything moves, then uh, it, it can disrupt your 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 navigation. So you have to set everything up in the right way. Yeah. Um, I have a question about well, the longer term outcomes of these surgery. Presumably these are all smaller children whose spines are still growing. So I was wondering what the risk of failure or migration of these complex screw cages, things yeah. that you're putting in their spine is still Yes, sir. I think those kids wind up with long term problems because they're still growing. Um, well, so I, I, you know, I follow them until skeletal maturity, and uh, and then after that, I tell them, you know, if you start having pain when you're 30, then you need to get some films. Um, a lot of times, if you just do a C1, C2 fusion or something like that, then um, you you really don't have any uh, significant effect on long-term spine growth. You know, if you did a large fusion on a skeletally uh, immature child, you know, um, less than 12, 13, 14, then then it could be uh, then you could have problems. And so then, you know, for scoliosis, people use growing rods or things like that. So, but long term for, for these children, since the usually the uh, upper cervical spine, when you fuse it, you don't um, have uh, long term sequela as long as the bone fuses. So it hasn't been a problem. But, uh, but it, it's something to worry about, and I, and I worry until they're, they're fully mature. Um, well, great. So, um, We'll move on to something completely different, but hopefully this will be fun. This is um, head scans and head circumference growth charts. I think we're still we're doing great on time. So, um, so uh, I, I know you guys see these all the time. I, I see these, but I usually just see them after they've uh, become abnormal. And so, um, this is a child. You can see the little X's, and so they're above 95th percentile. What does the scan look like? Um, so uh, here's the child. You can see um, the ventricles are on the plump side, but no florid hydrocephalus. But oh my God, there's an arachnoid cyst. And so um, this child uh, needed to have fenestration of the cyst. And so uh, what about this, this child? So this is another growth chart. You can see the little X's going up. So this is probably abnormal crossing percentiles. And uh, this child had a uh, prepontine arachnoid cyst. And so uh, you can see how it's pushing the pons back. And so the child was otherwise uh, uh, neurologically normal. And I followed the child for six months. And then it spontaneously ruptured, um, went away, and didn't need surgery. Um, you know, I had gotten a second opinion in Boston, almost got surgery, and then just went away. And uh, that's typically with arachnoid cysts, uh, I won't operate unless the child is having symptoms. And so you, you, they have to be under pressure, because a lot of times these really are just passive cysts. They're not under pressure. And um, they'll either resolve on their own as the child's head gets larger, um, or just won't cause any significant problem. And so you can see here the uh, arachnoid cyst. So you can see the cranial nerves getting stretched and uh, the brainstem getting pushed posteriorly. And so um, here's another child. Um, so you can see really uh, uh, crossing percentiles, but you know not too bad. Um, and so you had um, the child was having seizures, and you can see a, a, an acute non-chronic subdural hematoma. 
And so that was a non-accidental trauma, and you can see the, the subdural fluid around the brain. Here's another child. You can see the, the axons crossing percentiles, and um, normal brain. So, you know, occasionally that happens, but quick brains are easy. There's no radiation, so it's, I think it's always worthwhile to get a quick brain if we're worried about a child. Uh, here's a child where, gosh, you're starting here, and they're lost to follow-up, and now you're up here. And so uh, you've got giant ventricles, and the child came in sick, and uh, I needed to... Uh, shunt surgery. And so and here's another child. You can see, again, starting down here, now up here. And uh, again, you've got some subdural hematomas, um, non-accidental trauma. Uh, another child crossing percentiles. And another normal brain, and this is something that uh, you can see the extraaxial fluid. Um, a lot of people call it benign extraaxial fluid collections of infancy. And so these are kids who generally are destined to have large heads. Parents have large heads, and I'll measure their head circumference. And so their skull is just bigger than their brain, and their brain just has to catch up. And so um, this is, uh, again, these are just a dilated subarachnoid space, not a subdural hematoma, something completely benign and, and not a problem. Problem. And this uh, kind of segues into hydrocephalus, and so we'll go over. Uh huh. David, can I ask you a question? Yeah. From a nursing perspective, where should we be measuring their head for their head circumference? Um, so right here above the eye, and then back here around the uh, occiput, the inion, the um, so you can get the maximal head diameter. So, oh, so these are kids with hydrocephalus, and uh, so this is a child. So this is someone uh, that we'll see sometimes in the ICN. So a child comes out with a giant head, uh, prenatal diagnosis of hydrocephalus. Um, you can see the scalp veins here, and the child's not looking very happy. And then um, now you have a child with a shunt. You can see the abdominal incision. Um, Fontanelle is sunken. You can see the ridging uh, coronal suture here, the overriding bones. And so this is a typical picture when you have uh, sort of co congenital hydrocephalus. And so um, this is a normal brain. And so the MRI, just for comparison, this is abnormal. These are dilated ventricles. Uh, this is abnormal. Uh, this is uh, with premium IVH, and you can see how there's uh, uh, difference asymmetry in the brain. Um, this is aqueductal stenosis and massive hydrocephalus. Uh, this child had uh, TB meningitis, and you can see massive dilated ventricles, a very big, big head. Um, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, CSF uh, dynamics and production and then talk about what I do to treat hydrocephalus. So um, adults have about 150 cc's of CSF um, in the brain and spinal canal at any one time. About 30 cc's is in the brain and the rest is in the spinal canal. So it gives you sort of a um, comparison when you think about doing an LP and how much fluid you take off. Um, the fluid turns over about three times a day. So you have around 450 cc's that you make in a day. Uh, and um, some studies from the 70s um, found that about 0.35 cc's per gram per minute of CSF is produced by the choroid plexus, um, but these have never been repeated, so I, always, I think it's kind of dubious. Um, the choroid plexus makes about 70% of spinal fluid. The rest is a transudate from the ependema um, as a byproduct of glycolysis. And again, remember, water moves freely across the blood-brain barrier. And so um, what does CSF do? So CSF has a few functions. 
functions. It cleanses. It washes away potentially noxious byproducts of meta uh, metabolism. Uh, communication. Uh, so proteins may play a role in the cellular communication. Um, there have been some variation in proteins such as APP amyloid precursor protein, uh, which may correlate with ventricular size. And so it's sort of you know the pro proteomics are a big thing now. So people are looking into that um, with CSF. And there's a um, neurosurgeon at WashU who is collecting CSF samples and looking at this. Um, so CSF also uh, protects, so it protects and cushions the brain um, just from, uh, you know, um, just everyday uh, uh, bumps, but also from the blood vessels. And so you have the blood vessels uh, pulsating, and so it can help displace um, the CSF um, during the pulsation of the blood vessels. And that um, uh, is uh, part of the uh, thought that uh, syrinx production and, and uh, symptoms from Chiari malformation. And then uh, also cushioning, so it also it, it pressure dampens uh, the pulse way from the blood vessels and so um, the CSF production is decreased compared to adults and neonates, but it increases to adult levels as soon as around three to four years of age. And so children less than two may produce around 80 to 150 cc's a day. In full-term kids, when I've had an EVD, and um, I've usually had about 60 to um, 90 cc's per day. Um, and then um, there are case reports of over 600 cc's per day. I've seen one of a liter a day of CSF produced um, in young children. So there's not a really definitive weight-based or age-based rule to calculate the CSF production in a child. And again, for something like that, it's probably not an active process with like a sodium potassium ATPase. It's probably a transudate or something like that. Um, so this is um, the anatomy. This is, this is important um, to remember. So you've got the lateral ventricles. You have two of them. And so you have uh, foramen and Monroe here, and it goes in the third ventricle. You have the choroid plexus, and so it's here in the floor of the lateral ventricle, and then it comes over in the roof of the third ventricle. You can see it right there. And then um, you've got the floor of the third ventricle, and this is where we do something called an endoscopic third ventriculostomy to relieve pressure um, when there's an obstruction here at the cerebral aqueduct. You have the cerebral aqueduct, which is coming down to the fourth ventricle. You have some more choroid plexus there on the roof of the fourth uh, ventricle and something called telechoridia. And then you have a foramen of Magendi and Lushka's lateral. And so the CSF is produced here in the ventricles, and then it comes outside around the cerebellum up to the superior sagittal sinus where you have these arachnoid villus or granulations and you have absorption of CSF. And we think this is a passive process. So the uh, pressure, uh, central venous pressure is really related to the CSF absorption. If you have a high central venous pressure, then you can um, increase the intracranial pressure because you have to have a lower venous pressure than the uh, intracranial pressure to, to passively drain the CSF. And so, um, there are types of hydrocephalus. Three main types are obstructive. So this is a blockage of the CSF flow somewhere in that pathway. Uh, communicating, so this is poor reabsorption of the CSF and the arachnoid granulations, and we'll see that um, with tumor cells infiltrating uh, those arachnoid granulations. We'll see it with um, post-hemorrhagic um, uh, blood breakdown products um, are, uh, disrupting the arachnoid granulations, and also overproduction of spinal fluid. This is very rare, usually a choroid plexus tumor. And so the different causes, uh, you can have aqueductal obstruction. Um, so the cerebral aqueduct, you can have a tumor there. You can have, um, uh, if you have preemie-IVH, you can have uh, sort of blood breakdown products, um, post-meningitis. Um, you can have infection um, uh, uh, clogging up the aqueduct. Um, you can have neural tube defects or, you know, spina bifida, myelomeningocele, um, IVH, so prematurity, meningitis, head trauma, subarachnoid hemorrhage from maybe an aneurysm or ABM rupture. Tumors, arachnoid cysts, um, dandy walker, cerebellar malformation syndrome, or, or just idiopathic.
and you have some congenital hydrocephalus syndromes. And the signs that I'll see in children, uh, increasing head circumference um, is uh, by and large uh, uh, for neonates, um, uh, one of the top uh, signs, bulging fontanelle, delayed development, loss of upward gaze or paranods, um, lethargy, papilledema, um, six nerve palsy, hemiparesis, prominent scalp veins, just less interest in feeding. And uh, the symptoms uh, can include ir irritability, nausea, vomiting, um, headaches, lethargy, new seizures, double or blurry vision, or worsening school performance. And uh, a lot of kids uh, who have um, um, aqueductal stenosis, maybe from a tumor, um, I've, I've had kids come in multiple times where they're making A's and B's in uh, second, third, and fourth grade, and then fifth and sixth grade, they're not doing so well. The teachers think that they're just not trying. They start having some headaches or some problems walking. Finally, they get a scan, you know, three to four years after symptom onset, and they have hydrocephalus. And something that we can treat, I can do an endoscopic third ventriculostomy, and, you know, usually uh, about a month afterwards, their teachers are very happy and their school performance is up. And so um, it's, it's, it's a, just a uh, uh, very slow onset, and it's difficult to pick up sometimes. And so, um, so how do we treat hydrocephalus? And so, uh, people have heard about a shunt. So this is uh, um, quite a bit of uh, what I do. Maybe a third of my practice. You have a, a ventricular catheter, and then you have a valve, and then you have peritoneal, usually peritoneal tubing. Although you can put it into the uh, atrium, or you can put it into um, the the pleural space. So it's a pretty simple device. Uh, this is what they, they look like. They're handmade, they're made of plastic, and uh, then you have this stylastic uh, rubberized material that's biocompatible that goes over the, the outside. And uh, they have little connectors um, on the front and back, you know, top and bottom, so you can connect your tubing. Um, pretty simple device. Uh, the, you have an inflow, you usually have a tapping chamber, and then you have the um, valve system, and maybe a, a um, over-drainage protection device, and then you have the outflow. And here are just a couple other types of valves, and you can see the tapping chambers here. Um, so uh, we do also put uh, shunts in with navigation, and so this is uh, something new that I brought to Dartmouth, and uh, it's uh, something called stealth axiom. And so this is uh, EM electromagnetic guidance um, by the tip of the catheter. So um, usually um, uh, with uh, prior navigation systems, you have these reflective balls that we talked about at the end. And so uh, basically, if you have a very long um, uh, wire, especially if it's flexible, then if that doesn't stay completely completely straight, then the reflective balls at the end, which are navigating, um, uh, will uh, won't tell you that you're in, in, in the wrong position. And so with EM guidance, you have two EM coils that are at the end, so you're basically navigating. Instead of navigating on the distal end, you're navigating um, at the part that counts, which is the tip. And so uh, we have the stylet, and you have the shunt catheter, and it's really like a video game. And so you, you have your little target, I mean, really and truly, you have your target, and you line it up, and so that's where I want to go, that little orange dot. And once I line it up, I put the catheter in and then get spinal fluid back. And so um, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple device um, that works very well. I, I have uh, never missed using the stealth. And otherwise, we're using um, anatomic landmarks. And there have been some good studies in the neurosurgery literature. You probably don't want to hear this. But uh, <laughs> even among uh, residents, uh, junior and senior, and attendings, um, this is one out of uh, Barrow Neurologic Institute in, in um, um, Arizona, that um, the uh, uh, chance that you'll have a misplaced catheter is very high, over 30%. It doesn't matter 
better if you're an attending or if you're a second year resident. And so this is based on anatomic landmarks. And so um, having this where you can have it in the right spot every time increases safety and um, uh, um, accuracy. And so. So, so that's the shunt, and we've heard about shunts. Endoscopic third ventriculostomy is another way to treat um, hydrocephalus, and so this is where an endoscope is inserted into the lateral ventricle, and it goes in through a foramen and row to the floor of the third ventricle where we'll puncture, and uh, then we enlarge the hole with the forceps, and uh, then the scope's removed. So it takes maybe 45 minutes, and this um, bypasses an obstruction. It treats hydrocephalus, and um, then we can add choroid plexus cauterization. So this is cauterizing the choroid plexus which makes about 70% of spinal fluid, and that increases the efficacy of the surgery in young patients. Um, and I'll use a flexible endoscope to do that. And the thought is the more that you cauterize, the better chance that the child will remain shunt-free, which, which is a nice thing. Um, so this is uh, the scope that we'll use. It's a rigid endoscope, and so we go into the ventricle, um, like we saw in the prior cartoon, and you go in through four in a row, and here's four of the third ventricle. So you have the basilar artery, um, which um, if you, if you um, hit, you probably can't stop the bleeding. So that's the, the big risk of the surgery. You have the pituitary gland. If you're too far anterior, you can get um, pituitary dysfunction. And so you have to go in just the right spot based on anatomic landmarks to make the hole. And so um, this is an intraoperative picture. You can see the choroid plexus in the lateral ventricle, then coming to the roof of the third ventricle. The floor of the third ventricle is down here. And uh, this is something called mammillary bodies. The uh, pituitary stalks up here, uh, the basilar artery is down here, and then this is where you can safely make the hole. And so you see it all under direct visualization, so you can safely make the hole. And um, so I've got a, a quick video here. Whoops. So this is uh, going through the uh, brain parenchyma down into the ventricle. And uh, then uh, here you are inside the ventricle, and you can see the um, uh, septum pellucidum of the ventricle here. And it looks kind of like a tattered sail from long-standing hydrocephalus. We're looking down into the um, occipital horn. The choroid plexus is this feathery um, object. The thalamus is here. Um, this is foramen in a row. This is the fornix coming up like that. So you get memory problems if you hurt the fornix. And then uh, you just go straight in. And you can see the mammillary bodies here at the bottom. And then you can see the floor of the third ventricle, how it's kind of billowing. The pituitary stalk straight up there. And then you just use your device, and, and you can uh, puncture uh, the floor, and and, uh, and the surgery is done. So it's a, it's a high-risk surgery, um, but um, um, you can be shunt-free with the surgery. And um, uh, overall, if if you um, are well-trained and have good visualization, then then I think you, um, you can do it with uh, reasonable risks and um, and good outcomes. And so. Let me show you. This is a, just a little embolectomy balloon that will blow up, and then you kind of gently pull it through, and so it can gently dilate the uh, the tissue. And there it comes. And then uh, you do it again just to kind of stretch it, and then uh, you can look in. And we should be able to see the basilar artery here at the bottom. You can see the basilar artery at the bottom, and that's in front of the brainstem. So, 
Um, so what's the success? So um, so ETV is is very successful for some uh, some outcomes. So 90% success for aqueductal stenosis, um, and so that's the again the child that comes in uh, not doing so well in school. They're maybe 10 or 12 years of age. 40% uh, success at six months in a study of 1,400 kids in Africa, and so this is where um, in Africa um, you know the shunts are expensive and um, you uh, the patients can't pay for the shunts and so. Um, a neurosurgeon um, went there and, and did a lot of these endoscopic surgeries uh, because you don't need to implant any hardware. It's um, really just the, uh, the uh, cost of sterilizing the endoscope. Um, and so that's pretty, still pretty good, 40% success. And so the age predictors, uh, this, the predictors of success were um, age greater than one and use of the choroid plexus cauterization. So it's not great for neonates. Um, and there's new data saying that it's maybe 60% effective in spina bifida, 95% um, for aqueductal stenosis, and about 50 to 75% for everyone else. Um, so. Um, so what about shunts? And so why don't we just do shunts in everyone? Well, as you know, shunts um, can have problems. They can have a high infection rate, maybe 5 to 10%. Um, infection is most common in the first six months. And then the shunt survival, it's 60 to 70% at a year. And at four years, 35 to 45%. So that means that over half of kids will need another shunt surgery within four to five years of shunt placement. And it's something that you can manage. You can do the surgery. Kids usually go home the day after. but um, it's uh, really it can uh, have anxiety in parents. I have anxiety that parents won't recognize it, and a child will get sick and die at home. And so, um, it's it's really it's um, it's a, uh, managing these kids uh, through life. And so, um, the. Uh, Let's get to the, the point um, that was last summer of uh, what do we know. And so in the last few minutes um, that I have, which uh, just a couple minutes, we'll talk about a couple trials. I can tell you that neurosurgery literature is not uh, full of uh, well-done trials, and so uh, unfortunately. And so uh, just a couple, just to show you how little that we really know about shunt design and how um, uh, is really looking at three different types of shunt valves, 115 people in each group. And you can see based on this curve that um, all three valves worked about the same. These all had different mechanisms. Each company thought their valve would be better than the others, but that's not true. They all work about the same. So no one has come up with a perfect uh, shunt valve. Um, people looked at using an endoscope to put in a shunt, and so they randomized, and you know, it was a well-done uh, trial, 393 patients. Uh, from 16 pediatric neurosurgery centers. Uh, the incidence of shunt failure at a year was 42% in the endoscopic uh, insertion group and 34% in the non-endoscopic. So um, no difference endoscope, uh, using the endoscope to place the catheter did not help um, with uh, longevity of the shunt. You can see that their curves are um, overlapping. And so um, then they looked at a programmable valve. So we have different types of valves that are rated at different pressures, and there's a valve that you can adjust with a magnet. And so one uh, thought is that if you have um, a programmable valve and you can uh, set it at any one of these different uh, valve settings, and so you know from 30 millimeters of mercury up to um, uh, 200, and uh, gosh, maybe you could set it on the right valve setting and you'll have less malfunctions of the shunt. Um, and that was not the case. And so from new shunts and also from uh, revisions, um, it didn't matter what setting uh, for the valve, um, every shunt um, worked about the same. 
Um, you've probably heard of MOMS trials, the um, myelomeningocele um, trial for prenatal closure. So this is where um, uh, women uh, with uh, um, singleton uh, pregnancies, uh, gestational age between 19 and 26 weeks, a normal karyotype would undergo um, uh, surgery um, and, and fetal surgery to close the spina bifida, the myelomeningocele, and um, to see if, if this improved outcomes. This is a pretty well done study. and so. They found that the prenatal surgery group had more complications. 13% um, were born um, before 30 weeks gestational age, more respiratory distress in the infants, um, and they had more procedures for spinal cord tethering, which is another issue for another day. Um, but the uh, prenatal kids were more likely to walk without orthotics, uh, more likely to have a level of function better than expected, and more likely to be shunt free. Um, but there's no difference in cognitive stores. And so this is, there's still a lot of uh, controversy as far as um, whether you should do prenatal closure of spina bifida or not. Mm -hmm. So these are kids where I think through age four or so. It, you know, it wasn't long, long term. Um, so uh, I've, I've gone through a lot today. I um, have more to talk about another day. Um, but uh, I hope this was um, uh, entertaining. I hope that everyone learned something. And uh, I'd, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Question. I mean, uh, with kids with um, uh, VP shots, how often do you want to see them? And ideally, what would you like to have happen in terms of a feeder protocol for VP shots? Of a feeder? If kids have fever. So oh, fever. Oh, sure, yeah. How often do you want to see them for follow-up? Mm -hmm. And if they have fevers, ideally, what would you like to have happen? Uh, so, so that's a great. So um, this is my uh, protocol. So if I have a child, a neonate, that needs a shunt. Um, we'll put in the shunt. I'll see them around every three months during the first year of life, and that's because uh, you can have uh, asymptomatic head enlargement. So we'll basically just get a, um, a uh, head circumference, and I'll get a quick brain. And then at a year, um, when uh, fontanelle's starting to close, then um, I'll see them at a year. I'll see them at a um, year and six months, and then I'll see them at two years, and then I see them every year after that. And a lot of it is really reminding parents because I've had, I'll tell you, over and over, uh, eight, nine-year-old child had a shunt as an infant, uh, child's uh, developmentally normal. Um, you know, parents uh, sometimes forget uh, what it, you know, a shunt malfunction is like. And so I remind them every time I do shunt teaching and say these are the symptoms to look for. And I've had a few kids who have come in with headaches for a couple months with a shunt malfunction and the parents just didn't recognize it. And so, um, so that's, that's my protocol. And so as far as the fever goes, um, um, it, the uh, most common time to have a shunt infection is within the first six months of placement. And so if there's a fever and you, you can't find an origin to it within six months, then they'll do a shunt tap to um, look for a shunt infection. Um, if you're over six months, then um, I tip, the risk of infection is so low that I typically won't do a shunt tap in, unless it's a special circumstance. Um, so, but I always, you know, I'm happy if anyone has a child and you can't figure out what the fever's from, give me a call and then we would figure it out. I'd rather know than not know. Uh huh. Um, so I, I don't know if people are using the Rickham catheters more. What is the benefit of that? And I don't really understand how it's different than. The Rickham, so, that, so the Rickham, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a reservoir that's um, just in front of the valve, and um, it uh, directs the catheter sort of at a right angle directly into the brain. And so I, I like Rickham's because in little kids, um, when you put the catheter in, sometimes fluid can leak around the catheter, and so I can sew the Rickham to the pericranium, and so you have a seal there. Um, 
I, I know some, some neurosurgeons don't use it at all, but I, I, I like to use it for, because it directs the catheter in the right location, and then also it helps prevent uh, catheter pullout. And so I, I've had a lot of patients that I've inherited that um, as they get older, the valve is scarred into this, this, the skin, right? And so as the head gets bigger and the valve um, moves away from the burr hole, then the catheter pulls out of the ventricle, and then you have a shunt malfunction. And so I've had to go in a few times and, and put in these longer catheters. And so when I have a rickum and I sew it to the, the burr hole, then the catheter doesn't move, and so I don't have that problem. So. Uh, David, could you clarify the screening guidelines for trisomy 21? Because those are different than the American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines. As of 2011, they no longer recommend screening for asymptomatic children. And as far as I know, even in this institution prior to TNAs, I, I, somebody else in primary care, or Nina, correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't had either Dr. Smith or Dr. Chen or the anesthesiologist here say, could you please get the pre-screening flexion extension? neck films prior to their TNAs, and they all get TNAs at some point. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, um, I, I've seen kids come in who have uh, had uh, uh, pre-op TNA and then found to have severe instability. And so uh, I think it's pretty minimal radiation exposure, and I think having all of those kids have just one film, you know, at some point is uh, probably a good idea. I mean, um, this is, uh, uh, other pediatric neurosurgeons have a similar feeling, and it's just because we've seen kids who have... I see a different denominator. Yeah, I mean, and so I mean, you know, looking from a population standpoint, you're probably getting way too many, um, uh, you know, C-spine films um, if you screen everyone because the incidence is probably not that high, but it's high enough, and I've seen enough kids who have come in with, um, like this child with the urinary incontinence, that if he had you know, gotten a screening scan at age four or five, they would have seen the widened delantodental interval, and um, we would have caught it early, and I would have followed him in clinic and probably treated him sooner. And so, I, so that's always, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, you know, how uh, do you, um, should I, um, every child that has a head circumference crossing percentiles, should they get quick brain, or should we just follow and you know, uh, when do you when do you get get imaging? And so, I, I think for Downs, I, I think it would um, I would feel more comfortable getting a lateral X-ray. I mean, again, it's minimal radiation, and you can get a lot of information from it. Dr. Levin, uh, since the turnover CSF has a cleansing function in the in the brain, I'm wondering what you think might happen in those children who the, uh, you ablate a large portion of the aquarium plexus. So that's a, a big issue. So uh, the uh, surgeons who have done a tremendous amount of this um, type of work um, think that it um, doesn't affect uh, you know later cognitive function, and um, but we really just don't know. I mean, this is uh, something that has really um, over the past past six years really blown up in the pediatric neurosurgery world, and you have some centers who are doing just shunts. Now we're doing almost exclusively these endoscopic procedures, um, and we just don't have long-term data. And so it's, it's something I worry about. And so I, um, I, whether now on the flip side, we know that if a child has one shunt infection, then they take a cognitive hit. And so uh, someone really would need to randomize and look at it. Um, and it may be that you, know, you may have some decreased outcomes in some kids, but then when you look at if the kids would have had shunts, they would have you know, done who knows. And so it's, it's, it's a hard question. Um, David. How many operating suites uh, like the CSI exist elsewhere in the United States? 
Uh, well, so a few, a few people have the intraoperative MRI, but uh, no one um, that I know of yet has both, you know, the CT and the MRI um, in, in the same OR. Mm -hmm. so, one of a kind. Yeah, and so and it's very it's very helpful for these spine type cases. You know, the the intraoperative MRI is great for brain tumors, but um, to have the spine navigation as well as looking at at the MRI for tumor resection. Right. So, well, thank you. Thank you.